From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Anyone who has a child, which is the majority of adults, you understand how hard, how creative, how holy, really, how how beautiful, how skilled that labor is. It, it, to me, is so much harder, so much clearly harder than whatever the hell it is that I do. That's Gia Tolentino. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the best-selling author of Trick Mirror, an essay collection published in 2019. Tolentino is known for her distinctive perspective on contemporary culture, from social media to feminism to parenthood. Her subject matter and prose have earned her comparisons to another great essayist, Joan Didion. Tolentino is perhaps best known for her writing on how the internet impacts our daily lives, the way we work, define ourselves, and relate to one another. She joins me to discuss her thoughts about big tech, why she believes our society undervalues childcare, and how becoming a mother affirmed her belief in abortion rights. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Before I get to your questions, there's exciting news from CAFE. The new season of Up Against the Mob, hosted by Ellie Honig, is here. You can listen to the first episode now. Just search for and follow Up Against the Mob in your listening app. And now, on to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user Rich McCabe, who asks, When the Fulton County DA says charges were imminent on January 23rd, how do you define imminent? It seems lawyers have a loose definition of the term hashtag Asprey. Well, that's a good question. You're obviously referring to the Fulton County DA who, in the course of arguing against the unsealing of the special grand jury's report, tried to minimize the harm that would be done to the free flow of information, an argument brought by media organizations, by saying that indictments were imminent. The relevance of that being that the essential and important information in the still largely sealed grand jury report would become public because indictments and arrests eventually become public. So what did she mean by imminent? And you're right, lawyers do sometimes have a loose definition of the term, but sometimes they have a pretty strict definition of the term. Usually as a legal matter, the word imminent comes up as an adjective modifying danger. We all hear about imminent danger or imminent peril. That's a doctrine that has a fairly specific definition depending on the jurisdiction you're in. And generally speaking, if someone is in imminent danger, jurisdictions allow the use of deadly force to defend oneself. And generally speaking, imminent danger means certain danger, immediate, impending, menacingly close at hand, and threatening, often that means in the moment. That's what imminent can mean in that context. Now, I don't think that the Fulton County DA was using imminent as a legal term of art as it's sometimes used in those other contexts. I think she meant soon. And by soon, on the prosecutor's clock, that does not mean minutes. That does not mean hours. It usually doesn't even mean days. And in fact, it's been some weeks since January 23rd when that representation was made in court. My best guess is that she means a couple of months. So we're talking about potential indictments. I think later this month in March or in April. But that's just a guess on my part. This question comes in a tweet from Jen Hamill, who writes, as it relates to Ivanka Trump's subpoena, is there anything a prosecutor can do when a witness relies on, I don't recall, as an answer in a case? Can they be held in contempt 
or can a judge compel them to provide some more substantive information? Well, that's a great question. It doesn't only relate to Ivanka Trump's subpoena. We see it all the time. It's standard operating procedure often, sometimes in good faith, often not in good faith, but it's a very difficult thing to pierce, to prove someone is perjuring himself or herself or lying to someone. The answer I don't recall has to be demonstrably disprovable. So you need proof to hold someone accountable for that very unsatisfactory answer that in fact they do recall and they told someone they recalled and then they're acting and lying about it in the moment to prevent themselves from answering a question in a specific way. That happens from time to time, but it's rare. And your question reminds me of a story that I may have told before, but I don't think I have. Years ago when I was working in the Senate on the Judiciary Committee and we were doing an investigation into the politicization of the Justice Department, there was a lawyer and his client, somebody who was a high-ranking official at the Justice Department who resigned, whose deposition I was taking. And we went for several hours, once on a Sunday, and then we had a continuation of the deposition some days later. And at the beginning of the deposition, as sometimes happens, either I asked or the lawyer volunteered that there was one correction to the prior testimony that his client wished to give. So he, he opens up the deposition transcript and he points to some page, I'll say it's page 189, and he says to his client, Mr. Client, when you answer this question from Mr. Barrara, no, what did you actually mean to say? And the client says, I meant to say, I don't recall. It would be very unusual and, and very difficult to bring a charge based on I don't recall or hold someone accountable just for that phrase. But depending on the context and what kind of proceeding it is, you can imagine a trial that an executive of a company says, I don't recall many, many times, and that information comes in, or that person chooses to testify and says, I don't recall about circumstances, that you can make an argument to the jury that that's not credible based on the personality of the person or the significance of events that that person claims not to recall. And it might help your overall argument in a civil case or in a criminal case. But the basic recitation of I don't recall is a tried and true tactic on the part of witnesses the world over. I don't recall is the answer people rely on. Uh, again, as I said, sometimes in good faith, but very often not. But there's not a lot in most circumstances that prosecutors or judges can do about it. This question comes in an email from Sarah, who writes, Preet, since you do a great job of explaining complex legal concepts, would you consider providing your listeners with a way to understand beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, thanks for the compliment. So obviously, as you know, there are different standards of proof that are required depending on the type of proceeding that's at issue. To get an indictment, for example, or to get a search warrant, the standard is probable cause. To hold someone liable, generally speaking, in a civil litigation, the standard of proof is preponderance of the evidence, which means that something is more likely than not. The highest standard we have in our law in this country is the standard burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a high standard and is meant to be a high standard because most of the time, if not always, proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case means that someone might be deprived of their liberty. And we want to make sure that the burden of proof is high and we want to make sure that the burden of proof always stays with the state or the federal government. They're trying to do a very, very difficult and substantial and consequential thing to convict someone of a crime. And so it's supposed to be difficult, it's supposed to be hard, and it's supposed to take a lot of work. But rather than my explaining to you what it means, what beyond a reasonable doubt means, I'll tell you what judges tell juries. Throughout every criminal trial, and most importantly at the end of a criminal trial, before the jury begins deliberating on the charges presented, a judge will give often lengthy instructions on what the law is, what the burden is, what the standard of proof is. And there, is a, there are standard jury instructions that explain, probably better than I can, what beyond a reasonable doubt is supposed to mean. I'll give you a couple of examples. This comes from model criminal jury instructions in federal court, specifically in the Ninth Circuit. And in most circuits in the federal court, it would be something like this, quote, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you firmly convinced the defendant is guilty. It is not required that the government prove guilt beyond all possible doubt. A reasonable doubt is a doubt based upon reason and common sense and is not based purely on speculation. It may arise from a careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence or from lack of evidence. If after a careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence, you are not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty, it is your duty to find the defendant not guilty End quote. And there's more in the federal jury instruction, but you get the gist. Generally speaking, judges like to tell jurors a couple of things. First, that your doubt does not have to be completely non-existent, not beyond all doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And that doubt has to be based on something from the evidence, upon reason, upon common sense. Here's another way that judges have instructed jurors. This comes from the New York state court system. And here's what a judge might typically tell a jury in New York, quote, what does our law mean when it requires proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? The law uses the term proof beyond a reasonable doubt to tell you how convincing the evidence of guilt must be to permit a verdict of guilty. The law recognizes that in dealing with human affairs, there are very few things in the world that we know with absolute certainty. Therefore, the law does not require the people to prove a defendant guilty beyond all possible doubt. See the similarity? On the other hand, it is not sufficient to prove that the defendant is probably guilty. In a criminal case, the proof of guilt must be stronger than that. It must be beyond a reasonable doubt. And then there's more. A reasonable doubt is an honest doubt of the defendant's guilt for which a reason exists based on the nature and quality of the evidence. It is an actual doubt, not an imaginary doubt. It is a doubt that a reasonable person acting in a matter of this importance would be likely to entertain because of the evidence that was presented or because of the lack of convincing evidence, end quote. So I hope that explains it a little bit because that's the explanation you would get if you sit on a jury in a criminal case. We'll be right back with my conversation with Gia Tolentino. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino is perhaps the most celebrated cultural critic of her generation, the millennial generation. It's been over three years since she published her best-selling essay collection, and she joins me to discuss how her life and her culture have changed. Gia Tolentino, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you. We have a lot to talk about. Thank you for your writing. You know, we had, um, I guess he's your boss. David Remnick was on a few weeks ago. He is my boss. He is your boss. What kind of boss good is he? Good boss. I, I would yeah. say really good. <laughs> Are you saying that because, you know, this is going to be heard by hundreds of thousands of people, including maybe Yeah, him? yeah, yeah. I, I, have, I have handcuffs <laughs> to the bottom of my desk that will electrocute me if I didn't say that. But um, no, he's he's great. You wrote a book three and a half years ago, it came out, mm -hmm. Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. And I want to ask you about some of the themes from the book, but one of the things 
since we had David Remnick on that I was going to ask you about, you have said, and it's obviously, you can see it in your book, that in your acknowledgments, you thank David Remnick for not firing me for tweeting about your bong. Is that one of the, <laughs> is that one of the reasons he's a, he's, he's a great boss? <laughs> you know, I, I, I will say, when I first started working at The New Yorker, I guess that was 2016, it was extremely shocking to me that they that they would hire me. I I had just been blogging on the internet often. You know, I I was I was able to write seriously about things that I cared about, but you know, people have a certain idea of the New Yorker and it's quite, you know, respectable and and respectable was not an adjective that I would really associate with my general vibe at you know, the age of, that was seven years ago at the age of 26 or whatever that was, right? And I was doing things like tweeting about uh, smoking weed all the time, you know? Um, but I guess the jokes on all of us, because like my, one of my assignments for The New Yorker right now is I'm covering the recreational, the, as New York tries to stand up its recreational weed market, um, you know, I'm kind of writing about it from the sort of, they're trying to do what no state has done successfully before, which is sort of engage with the idea of reparations, you know, to marginalized communities through this, through these very particular policies. And, you know, my editor brought me this idea and I was like, I've been preparing for this my whole life. Yes, I am the perfect person <laughs> for this job. But you've, been, you know, so far to date, I have refrained from tweeting about my bong. Do you have one? And the principal reason for that is because I do not have <laughs> I do not okay. have a bong. <laughs> it's not really on brand for me to have a bong. Yeah, yeah. Well, you never know. Um, <laughs> yeah, my kids, maybe I shouldn't be talking about this, but like we, we had a, I'm a bit older, we had a hypothetical mm -hmm. conversation given the uh, legalization and the recreational use that's spreading whether, <laughs> whether daddy should smoke weed. And my kids were horrified and mortified that I would. Really? I think they aesthetically they, they thought just, just like you're just too old. Uh -huh. <laughs> They're just like you can't like what are you talking about? Like Yeah. That ship has sailed. <laughs> you can't do well, that I think now. often like my I have a two and a half year old and you know, I, I sort of you know, it's sort of a classic thing that you do when you're in your early or mid-teens where, you know, pot is this taboo thing. And I sort of feel that when my daughter is that age, she'll be like, weed? You know, that's that thing that, like, millennials do, you know? Like, those yeah. gummies for old people, you know? <laughs> I kind of wonder if their generation will, if her generation will skip skip the weed as rebellion phase altogether. It's too legal, it's to, too they, legal. They may, yeah. they may have to do something else. So I'm looking forward to your piece on that. So <laughs> you you have written very thoughtfully about social media in its various forms. We talk about that on the show. There's a lot of controversy about it. And you said many things about it. But one thing you said a few years ago in The New Yorker was, um, I apologize if I'm taking it out of context. No. But you, you said social media companies monetize everyday selfhood. And then you say some other things. And you say, over time, we have absorbed these terms and conditions. We may retain very little of the value we create, but we have also, but we have allowed social media to make us feel valuable. I was struck by how you phrased that. Mm. What's wrong with being made to feel valuable? I think I I don't remember writing that, but I bet it was in a blurb for Shoshana Zuboff's um, "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism," which you know I think is pretty much the ur text for all of this. Um, and I think that's that's the problem, right? There's absolutely nothing wrong at all with being made to feel valuable. In fact, like I, I think that the the essential, essential sort of spiritual and emotional and sort of soul level needs that that social media and the sort of surveillance economy draws on like these basic human needs to be seen and to be loved and to speak and to be heard. You know, like there's not only is nothing wrong with these things to be valued, right? Not only is nothing wrong with these things, they are so necessary to who we are and to our understanding of connecting to each other and, you know, creating like a self that that can do anything in the world. And the problem is, I think it's a bit of a trick, right? It's like the value does not really accrue to us. It accrues to... It accrues to the companies that are scraping our data. But you're talking about you're mean, talking about economic value, or are, there are different kinds of values, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it goes it goes back to the right. It's like the thing that was promised by social media fundamentally by all the companies in the mission statement is connection, right? And the actual the actual sort of 
cumulative emotional result doesn't feel like connection. It feels like extreme alienation and connection through mostly negative things, through like the strongest ties are through conspiracy and, you know, the emotions that bind people online tend to be much more negative than the emotions that bind them offline. And I think the same goes with value, right? What's promised is, you know, the possibility of being seen for who you are and for, especially for young people, like virality and maybe sudden fame and sudden riches. But I think the actual everyday experience for most people is one in which we are the ones providing value to these companies, that we have the sort of semblance emotionally of it, but are experiencing the structural reality of being sort of strip mined day by day and being left sort of like enervated and empty by it. I want to ask about a couple of these paradoxes. You've already mentioned whether or not social media and the internet whose promise is that we will be more connected actually causes us to be more alienated. Mm-hmm. Related to that, do you think that people are more themselves or more performative when they're on social media and are different people different? I think that it varies from person to person. I think, I do think that, you know, there there is something inherent about the structure of the internet where, you know, and I've, I've thought, I've written about this before in some way where it's like, you know, you can't just be on the internet the way that you can be in the real world, right? Like you can't just walk around online and someone sees you and you have kind of spontaneous interactions the way you do on a city street in New York, right? You have to, you have to act for anyone to see you. And that's not, that's not the case in real life, in physical life. And so I do think, you know, the internet in in that way, it values performance and representation inherently because it requires it in order for actions to be rendered visible. Well, you can you can just be a spectator online. I mean, yeah. some statistic I don't have it in front of me. The most so let's talk of the about Twitter for, lurkers and yeah, yeah, like the majority of people don't post a tweet on Twitter, and all the conversations that I tend to have and the things that people tend to write about are those small percentage or you know minority percentage of people. Who about whom I can ask, are they being themselves? Are they being performative? Are they, you know, radicalizing other people? Most people just scroll. Is yeah. that good or bad? I don't know. I think it, I think I think as with everything, right? It's like the the like isn't technology always, you know, technology itself, it's it's neutral and it's what we do with it. It's the value system that we apply it, that that we apply that technology to. It's like, you know, it's it's that that's entirely the thing, right? It's like it, every individual piece of context is determinative. I and I think, yeah, I mean, like, because of course you can you can name twelve different examples that are all in the spectrum of you know we want to oversimplify good and bad, right? There's like the person, there's the person who goes straight from never posting anything on the internet to, you know like committing a violent crime in the name of some conspiracy theory. And there's a person who, um, you know, is disabled and uses the internet as a way to understand community as like a primary way of a physical connection that can't happen in real life. And in that way, it's this like salvific, beautiful tool. Um, but in terms of, you know, but, but back to that question of, you know, are people more themselves or more performative online? I think you can be yourself on the internet because I think that, like, I don't think it's impossible to be a quote unquote authentic self on the internet in part because, you know, I, I write about, um, the sociologist Irving Goffman in my book, yeah. there's, you know, I, I really buy that model that, that you, you kind of naturally, but like performing performative has kind of a deservedly bad rap as a, as a word, it has a bad connotation. But, you know, I, I do think we are performing in real life when we're on the subway, we perform the role of, you know, kind of quiet commuter, hopefully. And when we're with our friends, we perform the role of friend and, and and those different performances, you know, I think there's nothing inherently wrong with them. And in fact, they're necessary to what we know as being human. Well, here's the other thing you've said, which I want to ask you about. You've said something like the internet turns life into an endless performance with no backstage. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And why is the backstage important? So as, you know, if we're going by the framework that the Goffman sets out, right, it's like we go about life, you know, right now we're performing like people having what is hopefully an interesting conversation on a podcast. And, you know, I'll later on, I'll walk my, you know, whatever, we'll go through all these different performances. 
And they change depending on the context and they change over. The audience changes over. We are each only, we are each other's only audiences right now. If I go to dinner with my friends, they are my audience, right? And then at the end of the day, we come home and we are effectively backstage and we, to the full extent we can, are performing for nobody. And, you know, it's like the natural rhythm of life. Those performances, they reset, they change every single day. They give us the opportunity to be kind of unseen and backstage. With the internet, the structure of of something like the internet, it's it's accumulative. Your audiences never change. They just increase. And there is no context separation. So so what, I mean, we've seen person after person get into trouble on, on the internet for this where, you know, we have different selves. We have different ways of speaking for different audiences. Um, or people on the internet, what's the the structural incentive is to just accumulate as many people in your audience <laughs> as possible in perpetuity around the clock, you know, in this one stable place where you are performing everything to possibly everybody, maybe till the end of time, you know? And there is something sort of mathematically very different from from any other idea of how we enact ourselves, this idea that you just accumulate quote unquote followers or viewers forever and ever. And that's the, you know, implicit end goal of these platforms. I want to ask you about something you said along these lines or in this uh, subject area just a couple of weeks ago on The Daily Show. And the host, because Trevor Noah has left, there's a series of rotating hosts and your host was Sarah Silverman. I'm a big fan of hers. How was, how was she? So cool. <laughs> so cool. That's Not a fun interview. <laughs> oh, now now you're being performative. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and Or I've radicalized you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one or the other. You were talking about some of these issues with her. And you said in the interview, I think one of the things that drives me personally nuts about all of it is that there's no sense of scale. It's like everything is presented as equally and maximally enraging when actually there are some things that matter a lot. Most things matter very little or nothing at all. We're taught that, you know, we should be, all be as mad as possible about all of it all the time. And I'm struck by what you said in the middle there. What things matter a lot and what things matter a little? So I used to be an editor for for blogs, for women's media, for this little website called The Hairpin, RIP. It was wonderful. And then for um, the website Jezebel. And, you know, I was an assigning editor and you had to just put stuff up online every 20 minutes, you know, all from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m., and the result of that was like, you know, I would just be combing my Twitter feed and I'd be like, okay, people are talking about this. Maybe someone should write about it, right? And that's kind of the law that, especially, you know, more eight, 10 years ago than now, there were a lot more blogs that ran on that kind of very quick, um, you know, content churn. I, I developed a bit of the decontextualization, like everything is equally important brain that the internet inculcates, you know, the idea that if something, if people were talking about it, it was worthy of sort of continuing to amplify that conversation. And I didn't even actually believe that it was just what operating within that chamber of sort of, you know, the the, the physics of discourse, it was just kind of how my brain started to work. And then once I was no longer editing, and I was just writing, you know, I, I remember feeling over the course of a few months, feeling that unwind and starting to ask myself, you know, what is actually triggering? Do you actually think this is important or, pe or are people just talking about it? Right, right. And, um, and you know, and that sounds so obvious, but I, I think that the, you know, the internet's really built to make us think that every single thing that people are talking about is not just important, but that we owe it to something to weigh in, right? And I think that that, you know, it feels almost, it feels almost like a psyop to, to, to um, you know, to erase from our brains the reality of scale and, you know, the, the reality of what actually, of what structural change is. And, you know, I, I think about this often in terms of the representation conversation, right? Like, I remember one of, I, I, I think about this with great shame, like one of the worst blogs I ever wrote in my blogging career was, you know, everyone was getting mad that day that Emma Stone was cast as like a half Asian person in some movie, right? <laughs> and um, and I get why they're mad, right? It's like, there is 
so much structural and cultural marginization of Asian people of all kinds. And it, it you know, and, and that's what people were mad about. But the thing that they were getting mad about it through was Emma Stone being cast, like an actress being cast in a movie that like probably not that many people were going to care about or watch anyway. And I blogged just this like super angry, you know, nonsense blog. And wait, but and what I, position I, did you take? Oh, that she shouldn't play an Asian person and it's ridiculous, see, right? Yeah. And like, and, and it's like, we can see the reality of structural marginalization and this creative choice. And it's like, maybe we can, but, but the thing to care about is not this casting choice. It's, it's the material reality of Asian American lives. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's so much, um, like, I think the internet, it, th that's another example of the sort of the internet focusing on the, on the representation of something of justice or something rather than the thing itself. And I think, it happens so op often where anything involving celebrities, people will talk about, you know, what kind of ideological pattern is visible in things celebrities said or did rather than the way that ideological pattern manifests in the structures of everyday life, right? Yeah, I, th I think the internet just has a way of making everything seem like it, it all matters when, as you know so well, it's like the what actually changes the fabric and the feel of life. It's not what celebrities are saying. It's not these little things that people are getting mad about. It's, it's these it's much bigger issues of, of policy and, and of governance and of, yeah. you know, the system. Yeah. I wonder if it's just the internet amplifies those things because, and I'm going to get mail uh, about this, but it, long before the internet, people in the world, including Americans, obsessed over things that I think were not important at all like every detail of the royal family's life in the UK. Right. And now we can do that more <laughs> because uh, Harry and his wife and others can provoke conversations on the internet about a book or about an interview or about rumors and, and whatever else. And I guess that leads me to the question, which is, was all of this foreseeable? Could social scientists and psychologists and behavioral people, could they have predicted, you think, what the internet would be like two, three, four decades after its inception? I think so. I Because I think, as you say, you know, it's not the drive that's new. It's not the drive towards triviality or distraction or anger, or, you know, um, projection, whatever it may be. Like, these things aren't new. It's just that it's just that the mechanisms for making them exponential and making them constant and making them inescapable and making them intertwined with the you know, the one device through which, you know, that also serves as our camera and the way of communicating to everyone we've ever loved and, you know, our, our, our way of checking the bus time and the weather, right? It's, it's not, it's not these tendencies, these cognitive tendencies. None of that's new. It's just what can be made of them and how, how they can be like almost just mathematically amplified. Do you ever wonder if, we are overly negative about the internet and overly negative about social media. <laughs> given given um, that the impulses that we're talking about are not new. It's just the platform yeah. is new, that's all. Well, you know, I do think what is really meaningfully new is that the, you know, the biggest and most change-making industries in the world in the last, you know, in, throughout my adulthood have been run on the economic model of, I, I think, really treating the, treating the the human self as as like the raw material that you would destroy with a you know mining ore you know like i i do think that is meaningfully new and because it's new it's worth being as negative about as possible you know there's in that Shoshana Zuboff book the age of surveillance capitalism she compares you know this entire th this entire economic structure it wasn't even invented till about 20 years ago right it's not it's not inevitable that it stays fixed it's not inevitable that the state of things right now where people kind of expect that they have no privacy and that tech companies will work faster you know will deliberately try to outrun regulation as hard as they can like this whole the the fundamental model, I don't think it has to be permanent and I don't think it should be. I mean, she compares it to, like, I think there could be a pushback, as, as I was talking about in The Daily Show, akin to the environmental movement in the 70s. Like, I, I think that there could be, you know, a central regulatory agency like the EPA or whatever, like some, 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 I kind of believe as someone that has taken a lot of pleasure in the internet in her life and has, the internet has led me to you know, to a lot of amazing things. And, you know, every every protest that I went to in the summer of 2020 
I found out about it on Instagram and, you know, the like abortion activism, there's so much, there is always like human potential and radical potential on the internet. But I do think that within the confines of this economic structure that, and, and what is, what is monetized and, you know, what the goal of these companies is, which is to get us to spend as much time on the internet as possible. And the way they do that, which is manipulating us into feeling as bad and angry as possible you know, I, I just think that it's it's worth being, it, it deserves all of that negativity and more if, if there's ever any hope of getting out of it. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Gia Tolentino after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What's your advice for how people should experience the internet and also experience their families and their friends and their occupations? What's the roadmap for either someone like you or someone like me, or is it the same? I think it's the same, but that the claws are probably deeper in people that are around my age, right? Because um, you know, the more I was, I was with a bunch of college students last week and the extent to which the internet and, you know, self-surveillance is in, intertwined with my entire coming of age is one thing, but for them, it's their whole life, right? Like they don't remember they had smartphones in third grade or whatever it was. And so I think that what, what I have tried to do to help myself, I'll, I'll just say, I'll just <laughs> <Okay>. say that <laughs> is I felt so strongly, I think, as many people did during the pandemic, it, it really clarified for me that the experiences that made me feel the most fully human, whether it's in an isolated sense or in a, in a sense of connecting to my family or friends, they were the experiences that were marked by all of the things that are not profitable to the internet and to social media companies. The the experience, the, the times when I feel most human and most myself really is when it's just unsurveilled and totally unmediated experience. That's what feels to me, that's what feels good. Right. And, and does that, you know what I mean? Like, does that ring true to you? It does. With the exception of, I, I feel very human right now surveilled on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> all. Of, <laughs> and, and it is a gift that we can that technology allows us to do this. But, you know, what we're trying to do is really, we're trying to replicate the feeling of us being in the same room yeah. and talking. This idea of not being surveilled, and I'm, I'm sure I still do this. When I was a U.S. attorney and I would do interviews with, with news outlets, sometimes on television, the, the television camera would go on and the interviewer would ask, me, would ask me questions. And I thought I was being myself. And then the camera would go off and I would continue to converse with the interviewer and more than once, the producer would say, where was that guy during the interview? You loosened up. I loosened up. And yeah. it was imperceptible to me, but very palpable to other people. And that's some, you think there's some version of that for all of us all the time now? I think that's possible. And I also think that there, like, I, I think this is maybe one thing where the generational, you know, whatever generational differences could be at play, come at play. Like, I think that I mean, part of the reason I've taken such an interest in this is that I think I have a personality that adapts very well to all mechanisms of performance. Like I, I liked performing literally as a kid and um, it comes sort of disturbingly naturally to me. Like I think I'm pretty similar 
I think that my I have very little changeover between selves. And that's part of what ma- has made me almost diabolically cleave to the internet, a, a structure that, you know, the structures that I believe are, you know, existentially destructive. But I, I, I think for some people, there would be no difference. But I think for, and those are the kind of people that tend to do terribly well on the internet, you know. But I think, right, just that knowing that, I, I, I think what you're saying too is like, if we know that someone's looking, if we know that someone's recording this, we're always going to speak just maybe a little bit differently. And I think I just, you know, during the pandemic, it was like texting my friends all day long, but I didn't want the phone in between us. I didn't want this magical device where I could send pictures of anything I was looking at to everyone that I love. Like that's magical. And I still hated it. I just wanted to be in the same room with them without any recording of it, without with just direct human presence, the direct physical human presence. And, you know, every discussion about police abolition and all of this stuff about that, you know, it's like all of that felt so different other than the reality of, you know, being at a protest or being at a meeting where, you know, local policy is, you know, I think that the the things that are valued, I think it's something that's maybe like a particularly millennial trait of mine, these things that have defined value and worth for as long as, you know, I can remember in my life, just extreme efficiency and extreme sort of seamlessness and and surveillance and amplification. Like, like what I want is inefficient experience, just sitting around and talking. Right. Well, you have Zoom now. You can do that. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I, I had a kid in August 2020, and that was one of the things that reiterated all of this for me. It was like, this was a kind of experience that is valueless in the eyes of the contemporary economy, arguably, right? That we think the labor of taking care of a kid is so devalued that we we think it should be performed either for free or for, you know, just poverty wages, basically. And yet, as anyone who's ever done it has experienced it is incredibly valuable and it's inc- valuable in part because it is it is all of the things that the economy doesn't value it is inefficient it's unsurveilled it is sort of cyclical rather than following any sort of clear trajectory of um you know of payoff or growth right it's it's slow it yeah you know it's it's an end in itself rather than a means to an end right and i think um I don't know, like vis-a-vis my relationship to a phone, that's another thing, right? Like so often it's just a means to not be alone with your thoughts or just like feel 2.5% better when you're sitting in bed kind of listless. Like, yeah, I think I've just sort of tried to steer myself towards those unvaluable values. So you you made the transition I was about to myself from these issues, and they're not unrelated, but to issues of parenthood and how you understand from being a, a new parent, a young parent, how society values certain things. And a version of what you said a moment ago, you wrote uh, last May in The New Yorker about getting childcare. You wrote, quote, we could afford to hire a nanny because a person can get paid more to sit in front of her computer and send a bunch of emails than she can to do a job so crucial and difficult that it seems objectively holy. To clean excrement off a body, to hold a person while they are crying, to cherish them because of and not despite their vulnerability. Yeah, I think that's a review of Angela Garbus's great book, Essential Labor. And, you know, as the title suggests, it comes out of what I think many of us hoped would be a larger reconsideration of labor and what is actually what kind of work is valuable that seemed like it would have had to come from 2020, right? Like that we... I think we saw so clearly that the work that actually makes our society function is often the work that is the lowest paid and the most devalued and the most invisible. And I think that, you know, the the thing about childcare as this unique lever into that is that taking care of a child, having children, this is kind of a crucible and experience through which almost everybody passes, right? It seemed to me so incomprehensible that anyone could pass through the experience of early parenthood and not think that childcare, childcare workers should be paid $100,000 a year, you know? Yeah. Um, and I know that's only possible through federal subsidy, but I think that's what needs to happen. Like, I, I think it, it just, it just seemed so, you know, cause I, I think there, there's maybe some plausible excuse for not knowing how, 
how hard and important farm work is maybe or something like that, right? Like, because uh, most people haven't done it. But anyone who has a child, which is the majority of adults, you understand how hard, how creative, how holy, really, how how beautiful, how skilled that labor is. It, it, to me, is so much harder, so much clearly harder than whatever the hell it is that I do. But then, you know, the the edifices of middle class or upper middle class parenting just kind of, they just sweep people on into like, well, we just, you know, it's, let's just kind of forget about all that and just continue to acknowledge that the world is flawed and then, and it's just going to be what it is. Like there's, I just thought, you know, it should be a universally radicalizing experience really is basically the argument of Angela Garbus's book. And, and, and I, I still am kind of baffled about why it isn't. Well, we, we valorize different things in part. We, right. we say it's much harder, you know, to be a top student in your high school class and then go on to college and then get, you know, an advanced degree. And because very few people can do those. So there's a scarcity. I mean, right. I'm just, I'm just theorizing off the top of my head a little bit, even though I've lived, I've lived a long time. You know, in, in some measure, the vast majority of humans, not everyone, but the vast majority of humans raise children. Right. And it, it may be in part, well, everyone does it, and we've been doing it for a long time. We've been doing it since before there were doctors, since before there were engineers, since before there was any kind of daycare, since before there were schools. We raised our children. And and so maybe that's that's part of the reason we don't value it, because it's it's almost mundane. But to be done right. well, the as very you point universal out. quality is the thing that negates the value. But yeah, I, but, right. but if you can, if you if you know something about astrophysics, well, you're very you're very rare, and in demand, I guess, right? Right. Or if you can prepare algorithms for Twitter. Right. It's I mean, it's the argument why professional athletes get paid what they do, while the people that clean the stadiums get paid what they do. But there was something about 2020 where it was like. There are some people without whom the the work of the rest of the world grinds to a to a halt, right? And childcare is one of those things. And so it's also food production, right? And it, it it's probably more specialized to. And and I guess yeah, those arguments will just always be at odds. Yeah, I mean, you made the point about some athletes get paid what they get paid, but as uh, somebody who's been a guest a couple of times on the show, Michael Sandel points out, certain athletes get paid what they get paid because there's a certain kind of sport that allows that. And, you know, some he speculates and theorizes that somewhere there is Michael Jordan's equivalent in the world of arm wrestling, right? It may be, it may be could be someone who otherwise right. cleans the stadium, but no one's paying $100 million a year to somebody who's the best arm wrestler in the world. So, so even meritocracy has its limits, given those financial constraints. You said um, in the New Yorker also, last year, something that I understand because I read more of what you wrote but if you segregate this sentence, it seems counterintuitive. And you wrote, what multiplied my commitment to abortion were the beautiful things about motherhood. How can that be? Yeah. So I grew up in an extremely, extremely anti-abortion community. I grew up in an evangelical, Southern Baptist evangelical com community in Houston, Texas. And, and so I grew up, you know, thinking abortion was murder and at some point between middle school and, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, however many years ago it was, now I believe that abortion should be, you know, available universally and unconditionally on demand. But the fact is, like, I, I retain an understanding of the gravity of this question, right? Like, it is embedded within my thinking and within my, like, sort of absolute abolitionist abortional, uh, abortion thinking that... It's an extremely serious thing to to think about what potential life is, or you know, or if, let's say you believe it's actual life, like it's it's an extremely serious thing. And you know, I had wondered what the experience of carrying a child would mean, right? Like I, I had wondered would it trigger my childhood, right? Would it trigger this thought that life in the womb is full life or something? Especially because it was something that I thought about being pregnant, I mean, one thing that I kind of took umbrage at was the way that like sort of well-meaning liberal consumerism plays exactly into anti-abortion language and thinking, right? Like plenty of women walking around Manhattan and Brooklyn, you know, Bernie voters are downloading apps that tell them how, what kind of fruit their baby is that week. And, and you see, I, I just use that language baby, right? Like you're, you're six weeks pregnant and the app is like, your baby is the size of, size of a pomegranate seed. Like what kind of crib are you going to buy for your baby, right? 
And like there's some way in which consumerism actually creates the fetal personhood that the, you know, far right policy is trying to inculcate. But is it just consumerism? I know I know many, many liberals, myself and my spouse included, who did not call our first uh the first time we were expecting a child, we did not call it our fetus. <laughs> you called yeah, it a baby, yeah. We called the it doctor a baby. Does too. And we and we named her. She was named before she came out. She had full personhood in our minds and we were absolutely committed to the idea of choice and I had been my whole life and she has been her whole life. Is that reconcilable or not? Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's just consumerism, but I also think that that behavior is, I mean, and obviously people have been doing this long since there was like, you know, the, since way before the industrial revolution, right? Like people, I'm sure women in the early modern Europe were naming, naming, um, you know, picking out names at, at 16 weeks. Right. Uh, but I do think that the culture of parenthood is so deeply shaped by consumerism that it's it it would be kind of difficult to fully extricate those things. But back to that quote, it was I had wondered how I would if being pregnant, the experience of pregnancy or motherhood would change my understanding of abortion. And I think I came through it and in early parenthood, it felt to me that motherhood to choose it or to not choose it, to not choose to be a mother is itself a sacred thing. It's, it's, it's an act of, it's an act of divinity and love akin to the act of affirming it. I like, it's to me, the, the decision to get an abortion is, it's always done. I mean, I, I don't want to sound glib saying this, but it seems to me a decision of affirming life. And I know that there are anti-abortion people who would you know, it's like this line of thinking sounds insane. It's literally ending a life, right? But that's not the experience of any person in the world that's ever gotten abortion. They they do it because what it is to be a parent is so weighty and so powerful. And th that transformation is so profound that it is out of respect for that, that one would choose not to be a parent. I think I remember some of my I, I've I've written about later abortion a, a few times, and it's it's an issue that I find really interesting and difficult to write about because it's something that many, you know, liberal people, progressive people are still kind of squeamish about the right to later abortion. And there are something like only four doctors that are openly practicing later abortions in all of the United States. And I remember this was a long time ago. I interviewed one of those doctors in New Mexico, and I believe she's no longer practicing. And you know, it just, it felt to me talking to this person that does these procedures that so much of the country would kind of unequivocally consider murder. And it felt to me that what she was doing, and was I, I just have no other language for it. It was divine that no one understood the nuances and the complications, the irreconcilable complications of fetal personhood, the way that this woman did, who performed abortions and took the fingerprints of those fetuses or those babies' bodies, and she would call them by their name if the parents wanted her to, and she would pray with them, and she would, you know, it was, and she was ending their lives almost always because of medical complications, and, but maybe sometimes not, and yeah, there was just something about that that, that felt like she was, she was acting out of a kind of divine what felt to me like a kind of divine love. And it was, but, but the, the quote exactly, right, that, that being, that the beautiful things about motherhood reaffirmed my commitment to abortion. It's like, as, as you, as you probably, you and your wife probably experienced, it's like, even under lovely circumstances, parenthood is, it's fucking devastating, you know? It is. Um, Here's how you put it a few sentences yeah. later, which I thought was very beautiful. You wrote, I had been able to choose this permanent rearrangement of my existence. That volition felt sacred. Right. Right. That like, you know, the, the idea that we would want to force people into parenthood before they felt that they could bring to it their full self and their full ability and their full and actually make their child safe. You know, and it's it just seems so it just seems so unfathomable to me. I want to switch gears just a little bit about some of these things you write about, because you said something interesting about the platforms from which you've done this work and that you write about women's issues and the like. You, you mentioned earlier that you edited blogs and you were a Jezebel and Hairpin. And you've mentioned that the perception of your writing and your subject matter is somewhat different when it comes out of The New Yorker than when it came out of Jezebel. Can you explain that and why that is so? 
<laughs> yeah, this drove me nuts when I first started. <laughs> I, I was super interesting what you had to say about it. I just went from being so frequently dismissed, you know, as like a dumb young woman working for like a feminist rag, <laughs> you know, to to a quote unquote serious writer. And I was writing about the same things, but if I was writing about quote unquote, wait, not just I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I meant to, I wasn't going to burden you and, and weight you down with this quote. But not yeah. just a serious writer, but someone who's been called the Joan Didion of her generation. Oh my god. <laughs> so I just, I, I just I want to add that there. <laughs> I reject that wonderful compliment, but I thank you for reading Ye it. Ye <laughs> alum of Jezebel and Hairpin, <laughs> the Joan Didion of her generation. Now, pr please proceed. I know, but to me, I'm like, that's so depressing about my generation. <laughs> um, I, you know, but I, I just found it extremely funny, um, the, like just the instant veneer of respectability and seriousness that dropped over every email I sent as soon as I was sending it from a NewYorker.com email address that I could never have clawed, you know, into my possession, no matter how hard I tried um, at Jezebel. Is some of that, I, I appreciate 100% how it feels, is some of that deserved and remember, yeah, David, sure. David Remnick is listening. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, you know, it's uh, one place is the place that published Hiroshima and the other place, you know, I like, you know, the, the bad example I always use is I once wrote a column where I was like writing as David Brooks from inside his own butthole. Like it's, you know, <laughs> okay. like to some extent. It's, I'm not quoting those back to you. <laughs> but I. Talk about performative. Yeah. I mean, so many levels of it, you know what I mean? But I just experienced an interesting thing within my trajectory as someone that was trying to write on the internet where women's issues started to no longer be siloed as women's issues, right? And that's part of what made it possible, sort of smoothed the possibility of me even working in a place like New Yorker, the New Yorker, which I would not have been able to do 10, 20, 30 years ago, certainly. Um, and it was just interesting to be one of the beneficiaries of this strange wave where suddenly the discourse broadly kind of recognized that women were people in, you know, I mean, exemplified most clearly with Me Too, right? Where suddenly this was obvious as, you know, a justice issue rather than like, rather than one that was exclusively siloed, you know, to women's, it, people began to understand that women's issues are people's issues and all sorts of people, you know, formally considered minorities issues are, issues of what it is to be a human and alive in society. But it was, it was, it was interesting. I, I, I deeply benefited from that transition, but it was, it was funny watching it kind of click into place. Like, you know, even things like the community that ended up storming the Capitol, right? Like there were, there were seeds, the, the Dobbs decision, the rollback of Roe, Roe v. Wade. These were things that feminist bloggers were writing about. We were tracking these men on 4chan and 8chan and all of these places we were tracking the bill by bill the you know the spaghetti of anti-abortion legislation that was being thrown at the texas legislature at the wall of the texas legislature every year you know this was the and this was so much of what we were writing about and it was frequently dismissed as sort of niche hysteria and these things turned out to be quite foundational to you know the trajectory of a you know of the american story of of this decade and and I think now we know that, but when I first started in women's media, it was sort of like, you know, these like yapping ladies with like sassy t-shirts, you know, was kind of the, um, you know, the, the caricature of what we were doing. Do you miss being at those other places? And would you go back to something like that? Well, I, I miss, this is part of, um, I miss the internet that was possible when, you know, so blogs have effectively disappeared, right? Like there, there's the sort of, the the journalistic middle class is getting as hollowed out as, you know, the general one, right? Um, when I, it, it hasn't been that long. I started writing on the internet in 2012, really, really not that long ago. And there were, there was a pretty robust ecosystem of pretty small websites run on pretty small budgets that a lot of people read in you know, places like Grantland even, right? Even, even though that was Disney. But, you know, like there were lots of blogs, places like the Hairpin, like independent publications that were able to be run successfully because, you know, just enough people read them that they could be supported on ad revenue. And then the fundamental model of digital advertising changed and you can't you can't run a place, you can't run a publication just on people reading it because of the way 
Facebook and Google interact with ad revenue for publications. And so what I miss is not necessarily working at those places. It is nice that people will answer my emails now. I can't like, and it is nice, you know, what the New Yorker provides is the one luxury that every writer dreams of, which is time. And and a lot of space. And a lot, and a lot of space and a lot of leeway and the ability to write. Do you get paid by the word? I get paid by the word. And and it's, you know, and fact-checking, right? Like we're, we're fact-checked to, to hell at The New Yorker. Yeah. And it's this incredible luxury of being taken care of and shepherded and to have all this space. I mean, like that, I would, I would never want to give up for blogging, you know, every 45 minutes, you know, nine to five. Again, I, I will never be able to or want to do that. But I do miss the internet where there were just a lot of independently run publications that people would read. And now it's like four places and a bunch of substacks, you know? That could evolve too. Like, what do you think will be in 10 years? I don't know. I mean, right now, the most viable model is like you either have a billionaire backer, a bunch of venture capital funding that goes nowhere, or you have a Patreon or a Substack. And yeah. I I mean, I do think it it should be possible to run a place on ad revenue, this like model that has supported publications since, you know, for centuries. <laughs> like, I, I do think that with some regulatory change, that could be possible again. Um, but I kind of do think that the direction of the internet is siloed conversation. Like we were kind of seeing what it's like when everyone's looking at everything or, or, or in recent years, we have seen what it's like when everyone is looking at the same things and it sucks. And the reaction has been like a people pulling back into these more gated realms of discourse, right? It's like, yeah, the Substacks and the Patreons and the discords and podcasts, right? There's not everything being visible to everyone. And I kind of, I, I think that that it will continue to kind of refracture into modicums of, you know, smaller communities. Right. I mean, part of the reason for that is the economics. If you make a name for yourself and you have a byline at the Times or the Washington Post or somewhere else, they don't pay you a ton. I mean, you can be at the height of your field as a breaking news reporter at a major publication and you're making a lot less than a first year law firm associate. And the way to make more is is to open up a Substack, and there you go. Totally, and and <laughs> turn into a reactionary centrist. Open a Substack. I mean, yeah, I, I we joke all the time, like like it's like there there could be so much um, like a, a real grift that anyone could like my my former colleagues at let's say Jezebel. You know, it's like we're like actually we realized we just get red pilled and start a Substack about how like you know, actually like feminism is bad, you know, like men's rights are the biggest issue. Right. And it's like, we could probably make so much money doing that. <laughs> um, but yet it does not, it does not appeal. Well, we could talk about a million more things. I had about a hundred more questions on my list and topics on my list. We don't want David Remnick to get annoyed that you're not writing words for the magazine. So Gia Tolentino, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. My conversation with Gia Tolentino continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking about the overlap of two things that have been in the news lately. The first is the health of former President Jimmy Carter, which has been in the news after the Carter Center announced that the former president was put in hospice care. The second is the possibility of alien life, which has been on people's minds since the various stories about UFOs being shot down. Last week, something came to my attention that lies kind of at the intersection of these two things. Twitter user at Keith Edwards posted a picture of a message former President Jimmy Carter left on Voyager 1. He found it to be breathtaking. And I agree. For those who don't know, in 1977, when Carter was president, NASA launched a spacecraft known as Voyager 1, which was launched to explore the planets of the outer solar system and the interplanetary environment. It was then the most distant man-made object from Earth. The message, intended for intelligent alien life, was this, and I'm quoting. This Voyager spacecraft was constructed by the United States of America. We are a community of 240 million human beings among the more than 4 billion who inhabit planet Earth. 
We human beings are still divided into nation-states, but these states are rapidly becoming a single global civilization. We cast this message into the cosmos. It is likely to survive a billion years into our future, when our civilization is profoundly altered and the surface of the Earth may be vastly changed. Of the 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, some, perhaps many, may have inhabited planets and space-faring civilizations. If one such civilization intercepts Voyager and can understand these recorded contents, here is our message. This is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours. We hope someday, having solved the problems we face, to join a community of galactic civilizations. This record represents our hope and our determination and our goodwill in a vast and awesome universe. And it's signed by Jimmy Carter, President of the United States of America, the White House, June 16th, 1977. So I leave you with that message, and I hope you all found it as beautiful and aspirational and hopeful as I did. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Gia Tolentino. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.